Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. What a great time of worship. Thank you guys so much for leading us uh, in that this morning. And as we continue to worship, as we come to the scriptures today, I want to invite you to pray with me, if you would. Father God, we're grateful for where we find ourselves today. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Thank you for this time to um, consider what you have wanted to say to us, and you've put it in a book. And so I pray, Lord, that as, uh, as the Scriptures tell us that it would be profitable today to instruct us, uh, Lord, that it would reprove us and correct us, Lord, and ultimately train and equip us for the work of ministry. And Lord, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to illumine your truth and to apply it to our life. And so, Lord, we ask that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I begin uh, this morning, I want to start by telling you something about eggs and icebergs, all right? You guys like eggs? Like to eat eggs? I got a cousin who doesn't like to eat eggs. I love eggs. I love fried eggs. I love scrambled eggs. I love omelets. I love egg salad. I'm kind of sounding like Bubba Gump in... Uh, Fried shrimp, shrimp kebabs, grilled shrimp, right? Well, as I was thinking this week about this message, I, I was thinking about a couple of things. Number one, I was thinking about some conversations that I've had uh, in recent times and some in the past as well. But I was thinking about eggs, conversations and eggs. And I wanted to, uh, for just a moment, I want you to, I want you to imagine that um, this egg right here represents a life, a life that is whole, all right, a life that is intact. But you know, as I was thinking about some of these conversations and where I found some people uh, that have come and shared with me some things about where they are in their life and the challenges, you know, this egg looks whole, but in a lot of ways, some of the lives of, of some of the people as they've described it have looked a little bit more like this. That didn't work out too well. This all sounded really good. I bought really good eggs, and they're not breaking like I saw. But, you know, if I take it in here, this is a mess, right? All kind of gooey stuff all over my hand. And, you know, sometimes our life can look like a mess. And, you know, when it looks like what's in this bowl and what's on my hand right now, you know what? We want more than anything. We want our life to be restored. We want it to be brought back to wholeness. We want our life. You think about the story of Humpty Dumpty that we all heard as kids. We want our pieces of our life to be put back together again, right? And so as I was thinking about this and, and some of the uh, situations and circumstances, there's a book that I've, I've read in recent months. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Some of you have read it. Some of you may have sat through a class that was taught here, but it's, it's written by a pastor in Queens, New York. His name is Peter Schizero, and he writes this. He says, in our more honest moments, most of us will admit that much like an iceberg, we're made of deep layers that exist well beneath our day-to-day -day awareness. Only 10% of an iceberg is visible, while the other 90% remains hidden under the surface. The 10% that others can see represents the way that we conduct ourselves and changes that we make that are visible. 
He says, but too often the roots of who we are continue unchanged and unmoved. As a pastor, he said, you know what, my egg was a mess. His life was a mess. He said, I had no joy in ministry. He said, the pains of ministry led me to anger and depression and frustration. His wife was lonely because she was trying to raise their children without him being very present in their life and was fatigued and desired more from their marriage. And he would tell you, as he writes, he said, on the surface, everything seemed to look okay. But underneath, he said, I had no idea how to cope with the emotional struggle and the strain and the stress of where I was in my life and my ministry. And he said, I felt more like my life would be characterized by spiritual defeat rather than spiritual victory. And he knew that God had called him to something else. He knew that what he was experiencing was not all that God intended, but he didn't know how to fix it. And he said, you know what? I tried hard. He said, but trying harder wasn't working. And so he said, I realized I was desperate for a couple of things. He said, I was desperate for help, and I was desperate for hope. He wanted things to be made whole again. And so I want you to stop and think about your life for just a second as we start this morning. Has your life, or maybe is your life, a mess? Has it been crushed and, and shattered in some respect? Has the 90% of your life, is it visible or is it like an iceberg? Does most of it remain hidden and unmoved and unchanged? Are you experiencing more spiritual defeat or victory? If you think about where you are, Dwight Pentecost, a professor, the seminary where I went to school, he wrote this, the word of God places impossibly high standards on the conduct of the child of God. We're told to live as Jesus lived and to walk as Jesus walked and to love as Jesus loved. And as you think about where Alan's been walking us through the book of Philippians and the exhortations in Paul's letters of how we're to live our life, we've heard things like conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. We've been instructed to follow the example of Christ, to humble ourselves, to, to follow his example and work out our own salvation, to press on to the upward call of Jesus Christ, right? And you know, when you read through Philippians or you read through the Bible in general, you realize that some of these exhortations, that's a tall order. And the second thing we realize is that we're desperate for help and hope. And how in the world do we do this, right? Have you ever found yourself there? How, as a follower of Jesus, can I live this life that God has not only desired, but he's, he's called me to, he instructs me to do that. And that is the very question that the Galatians were asking and trying to answer, and they did answer. And we're going to spend our time in another part of Scripture today, but I want to read for you some verses in Galatians chapter 2 in the beginning of verse 3. And the, what Paul is talking about here is that there were some there in these churches in Galatia who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they had been saved from their sins, but they began to embrace a mentality that said, faith is not enough. 
that something else had to be added to it, these works of the law. And this is what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I live in the flesh I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians. He says this twice. He says, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive, listen, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, that's, that's what Paul is trying to address as he's writing them and to fight against this mentality that faith was not enough, that there were other things that had to be added to it. And what we just read in Galatians 2.20 reminds us, number one, that we died with Christ. Those of us who are believers and have put their faith in Jesus, that we have died with him and that life that we now live by faith, he indwells us. And also we're reminded at the end that we are loved unconditionally, that he laid his life down when we were, as other parts of Scripture say, an enemy of God. And so I hope today that wherever you are in your life, whether you're in a place of dependence or whether you're in a place of despair, I hope that you know that you're loved. I do. I hope you know that you're loved by God. And that he loves you enough to send his son to lay his life down, to pay the penalty that you and I could never pay on our own. But in Galatians 1, verses, or chapter 3, 1 to 3, he says, What in the world is going on with your thinking? He says, You've begun by the Spirit. Are you now being perfected in the flesh? It's a question that demands or expects an obvious no, right? He says to do that, you would be brought back into bondage to the very things that God has redeemed you from. And so when you talk about this idea of flesh in the Bible, it can talk about flesh as a material man, kind of like our body. But in the theological and ethical sense, flesh means the natural effort of man, of what he strives to do apart from the power of God. And so when Paul is talking about this flesh, and he tells him later in this book, he says, walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of flesh. He's saying two things. Number one, it's possible. It's possible for Christians to strive to live their spiritual life in their own effort and in their own strength. He says that about himself in Romans chapter 7 in this war that's going on between the Spirit and the flesh. But the second thing is he's defining the pathway to spiritual wholeness. He literally says, be walking by means of the Spirit, who is your support and strength. And so I brought these crutches this morning. I remember I was in high school my junior year, right before, right before my junior year, playing backyard football. And I broke my leg really badly. And I had to use crutches, and many of you have probably used some of these crutches in your own life. And uh, I, had to wear, I had to use them for 12 weeks. I had a cast all the way up to my thigh for about six or seven weeks, and I had one from my knee down uh, for about another five or six weeks. And so all in all, it was months. 
you know, that I was having to, to use these. And, and the reason that I had to use them, the reason you've had to use them is because if something is broken, like my leg was broken, it can't support me, right? It was broken, and so I needed something. I, I needed this, this idea of, of something that would help provide the support. And so as you think about these crutches, I want you to think about crutch number one is, is help. We need help in the spiritual life, right? I needed help to get around. The second is I needed hope, help and hope. And as I used these, it helped me to be, begin the process of functioning. The hope that I needed was that I wasn't going to have to use them forever. That there's going to be a better day that healing was taking place that despite something that was broken, that was crushed or shattered, that, that there was a hope that a better day was coming. And it helped me to endure those 12, 13 weeks with crutches because I knew that I'd be able to walk again, Right? And so I want you to just think about today as we look at Romans chapter 8 and this whole concept of the Holy Spirit providing help in the present and hope for the future. I want you, when you think about that, those crutches to think in those terms. And so turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to give you an overview. Uh, it's a big pill to swallow to try to tackle all of this, but I'm just going to hit some highlights for you. But in, in Romans chapter 8, it's a text that is going to describe life in and with and by the Holy Spirit for the Christian who offers us the help and hope that we need to be able to do what Paul is telling the Galatians. This is how you need to do it, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit. John Stott was a pastor. Many of you may have read some of his books. Listen to what he said here. The Christian life is essentially life in the spirit, that is to say, a life that is animated and sustained and directed and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. And I'm reminded of the last words of Jesus when he says in Matthew chapter 28, he gives what is commonly called the Great Commission. He tells the disciples, this is what I now want you to go and do and to be about. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And so as he gives them this instruction, he tells them what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to go into the world, and I want you to make disciples. But if you flip to Acts chapter 1, there's something Jesus tells them. And it's in verse 4. And he says, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem until what the Father has promised comes upon you. And what he's speaking of is he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is, I want you to go and do this, but listen, I don't want you to go and do this in your own strength, in your own power. He said, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Father sends the helper, right? The parakletos, the one who comes alongside to empower you to do the work of ministry and ultimately will empower you and me to live this life that the scriptures call us to live. That's incredibly hard to do in our own flesh. But with the power of the Spirit, we can have victory and we can learn to walk in his power and experience what God desires for us to experience. So look, look with me in Romans chapter 8, these great words that begin the chapter, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. This first part, this first section of verses 1 to 11 really speaks about God's provision and our condition. And he speaks here of a freedom from condemnation. It's, it's a word that means penal servitude or, or a criminal that's being punished, right? And he says, for those who are in Christ, the law has absolutely no power to bring charges of condemnation against us. And so there's this freedom from condemnation. In verses 3 and 4, it speaks not only about our position, but our practice. And this is what he says, For what the law couldn't do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And so this whole idea of when a prisoner is set free, if someone's in jail, they've served their time, and they're set free from prison, they're not just set free from prison, but they're set free unto something else, right? To begin to live a new life. And that's what Christ has done, is he has set us free from the burdens of our sinfulness, and he's allowing us now to be freed from the law of sin and death, and he's freeing us unto a life in the Spirit. That's what he's talking about here, okay? And then look down at verses 5 through 11. It's freedom from the control of sin's power. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, he says, the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit, he says, is life and peace. And so in those verses... I'm not going to read all of them, but basically what he's saying is there's this contrast between life according to the flesh, life according to the Spirit. And though the, the power uh, of sin is still there, the Spirit has freed us up, is what he's saying, from being obligated to follow its desires, to be controlled by its appetite. You know, we've, we've been set free from the penalty of sin because Christ died for us, but we have been set free from the power of sin because we died with him, okay? And so what he's saying here, I remember um, there's a guy at Pine Cove, a camp that we've been a part of uh, going to for several years, and, and they all have names, and his name was Opie. That was his camp name. But Opie used to say all the time, he said, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And I don't know about you, but... You know, all of us have our vices. We can all find ourselves entrapped in patterns uh, that, that cause us to feel spiritually defeated. I alluded to that earlier. And I don't know about you, but sometimes there may be, okay, I'm experiencing victory over here, but man, this one thing here, it's kicking the slats out from underneath my life. And we can feel hopeless and helpless and that we're always going to be defeated. And, and what I think Paul is saying here is it doesn't have to be that way. For me, it doesn't have to be that way for you. But, but it's, it calls us to understand that we have to find victory, not muscling up in our own self, but we have to find victory in the power of the Spirit of God who lives within us. And so there's this, uh, this idea of our setting our mind. I read that verse. Uh, it's important. The battleground of the life is so often established by where we put our mind, what we think about. He mentions the mind four times. And then he goes on to talk about the expectation is to manifest control of the Spirit. And uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, you guys may be familiar with who she is, but I, I read something this week about 
uh, something that she said, an illustration. You may have seen this before. But uh, she says, you know, I have in my hand a glove. And this glove in and of itself, it can't really do much, can it? Other than just sit here in my hand. But when I put my hand in the glove, now all of a sudden I can wave, I can point, I can reach down, I can pick up something. And so all of a sudden when the hand is in the glove, this, it, it, I like that word that John Stott used earlier in that quote, it animates life. And you know what? You and I are like a glove. And the Holy Spirit's the hand. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and we've got to make room for him to fill up every finger, every last little nook and cranny, right? But when he does, he has control over everything that's going on. And so this is how, how you and I are called to live the life that if we try to do it in our own strength, we're not going to get very far. And so that's what he's talking about in 1 to 11. Let's look at 12 to 17. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so we have this, I've, I've alluded to it already, but this freedom. Understand this. You have freedom to follow the Holy Spirit. You're not obligated to your flesh. You have the freedom not to serve the direction of our natural tendency. And then he moves on in verses 15 to 17. He says, not only do you have the freedom to follow the Spirit, you have freedom from the fear of being abandoned. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's an intimate term. I mean, Daddy. Those are family terms. You get that? Adoption, son, Abba, Father, those are, those are relational terms, and God has a relationship with us and that we have, we have been outside the family, been brought in, we've been adopted. And, you know, back in the Roman Empire, the culture was that an adopted son was given full legal status as a natural son. So every right that natural son had, an adopted son would have as well. And so you and I uh, have been adopted by God. We are his children. And then he says in verse 17, listen to this, and if your children... He says, you are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And so the, the Holy Spirit has come into our life. And just like if you've ever adopted a child or know someone that's adopted a child, there's a, there's a stamp, there's a seal, there's a signature in the court record that says this adoption has taken place and this is, this is a, a child that belongs to you. The Holy Spirit comes in. He is our deposit. Not only are we marked and sealed in Him, but He's our deposit guaranteeing what's to come, that God is going to follow through on the deal. Not just in the present, but in the future. And what He says about that is not only are you children, He says you're heirs. You're going to receive everything that the Son receives, Jesus. And when it says, if indeed we suffer, it's actually the word since we suffer. I don't know what your Bible says, but mine says, if indeed we suffer. It's not a conditional clause that says, well, we'll only do this if we suffer. He says, no, it's a fact that because we are heirs, we inherit everything Jesus did, the suffering and the glory, both. It's a package deal. And so when he gets into verse 18, and what we're going to talk about here over the next few minutes is this struggle in life. 
that we all know. This is all great news, 8, 1 to 17, that he's given us the spirit, that we're not condemned, that we've been adopted as sons. But guess what? This life is broken. Just like that egg that I showed you earlier, you know, we, li we live in a messed up world. And sin has, has changed everything about the experience that you and I have. But God has given us hope, okay? And he's given us help. That's what today is all about. And so I want to just mention for you four promises in verses 18 to 25 um, that, that encourage us. He says, For I consider, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. No matter how bad life can get here on earth, there's nothing that's going to be able to compare to the glory that's going to await you know, and I think about this whole, um, you know, concept of what Paul was going through. And you think about uh, Nero, the, uh, the guy who was ruling in Rome and just uh, a horrific person who tortured uh, Christians. And he's saying, you know, this is a guy who's writing and witnessing all of this. He says, the sufferings are going to be this big compared to the glory that will come one day for you and me, and that's a hopeful statement. And we can have hope because there's this promise of future glory. Second, there's a promise of creation being set free. This is what he's talking about in 19 to 22. And it says creation is waiting eagerly, all right? Kind of sitting on there, as J.B. Phillips said, creation's kind of sitting on its tiptoes, waiting because they're seeing us, the sons of God. We're, we're hope to them. It's kind of like I heard a pastor talking this week. He said, you know, when I was growing up, he said, man, I love Thanksgiving. He said, I didn't have a clue what Thanksgiving is about, but all I knew is that when Thanksgiving got here, I knew Christmas was right around the corner, <laughs> you know? And he said, I watched that Thanksgiving Day parade, and he said, who was at the very end of that parade? He said, it was Santa Claus. He said, good things were coming in a few weeks down the road. And listen, when creation looks at us and sees in the grand scheme of all that's going on, you and I, the body of Christ, we're like Thanksgiving to creation. They know there's going to be a redemption that is coming. They know there's going to be a new freedom that's going to be experienced. Creation that was suppressed in futility and unable to achieve all that God desired all the way back into the garden. All of a sudden, there's going to be a day that's coming when it will be restored. It will be made whole, just as you and I will. And that's what he's talking about in 19 through 22, this revealing of the sons of God. But until then, there are birth pains. And those of you in here who are moms and have been through that whole experience, you birthed your children in pain, right? But you endured. Why? Because there was joy that was coming. And when that baby is there, there's a joy that all of a sudden makes all the pain seem small and not as meaningful, not as difficult because you made it through it, you know? My wife did it four times. I told her, if I had to do it, William would be our only child. You know, I don't know how, but something God does, it's just incredible. And so that's kind of a, a picture of a woman in labor giving birth to a child. There's pain now, but there's, there's blessing and joy and peace that's coming around the corner. Third, we have this promise of the believer's bodily redemption in verse 23. And just like it says, creation groans, it says, you and I groan too. It's a word tension. 
You know, we feel it in the present. And it says we have the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23. And if you think about what first fruits were to Israel, that was an offering. They would take the first part of the harvest, they'd give it to God as an offering. And they didn't just give their sense of hope. It wasn't like, hey, I hope it's going to rain this afternoon or I hope we're going to get there on time. Their hope was expressed as the idea of certainty, of a guarantee of what's to come. And so they offered first fruits and they did it with confidence knowing that God, the whole thing belonged to God. We're offering the first 10% and he's going to bring in the rest. And it was an offering that they made because they had confidence and trust in what was going on because these first fruits, and just like the Holy Spirit, he says here, is a first fruits for you and me. That not only, like I said, that he's given the Spirit to us now, but he's a down payment for what's coming. That he's going to see us all the way through this process. And then lastly, a promise that patience will be rewarded. You know, we groan now, but here's the hope. You and I don't groan alone. We don't go through life by ourselves. And I love this in verse 26. This is what he says. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For if we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know, this whole idea of we don't struggle by ourselves. That I mentioned the word paraclete earlier. It's a word that means uh, the one who is called alongside. This is a different word here. It only shows up one other time in the New Testament, and it's in the story that you guys know of Mary and Martha. When they come to uh, Jesus comes to their house, and Martha's all busy with all kinds of serving responsibilities, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha comes into the house, and she says, Jesus, don't, don't you care? Get her to what? Help me, okay? Get her to help me. That's, that's this word right here in Romans 8, 26. It's only used two times, Luke 10 and right here. And it's, it's a mouthful uh, to say, soon antilambano. But it's a word that just means one who joins to help by coming to the other side and lifting a burden. And life can be burdensome. We all know that, all of our life experience. We know the burdens that we carry. You brought them in here with you this morning. I brought mine with me. But I want to encourage you that you've got a helper. You've got someone who wants to come alongside to help lift that burden. He wants to join you in your, in your life to lift up those things, to be a help and to be an encouragement to you. And so then in verse 28 and 29, some very familiar verses that you guys know is probably one of the most quoted, and 29 is probably one of the ones that gets left off. It's like Cinderella gets left at the ball, you know, verse 29. But I want to read them both to you real quick. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen. God takes all things, good and bad, and in his mind, it's all for our good. It makes sense. We may not understand it. It's kind of like cross-stitch. You look at one, one side, it looks like an absolute mess, but when you flip it to the other side, there's a beautiful picture, a pattern, and it makes sense when you look at it. So when God looks at our life and the challenges, it's almost like we look sometimes and everything looks like that egg. It looks like a mess sometimes, and we don't understand, and we want to make sense of it. And God is looking at it from the other side saying, listen, trust me. I'm, I'm weaving something together. I'm putting something together that's going to be beautiful in the end. And it's going to be for your good. And so God either decrees or allows things that are difficult, but it's all about the process of, 
of achieving his goal for you and me to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what it's about. And I love what it says in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, what God starts, he's going to finish. He's going to see it all the way through. And when you get to the, that, recognize the fact that that's what God is doing. He's, listen, we can have hope that he's going to see us through. He's going to saw them through. He saw Paul through. He's going to see you and me through. All the way to the end, there's glory that awaits those of us who are in Christ. And that's a hopeful thing. And when you think about that, how do we respond? Well, that's what he says in the last, last section of Romans 8 is praise. Is praise the Lord. For all that he's done, he doesn't make empty promises. He has given us a legal standing that ensures we can't be condemned. His love enables us to become, he says, more than conquerors. And, and it begins with no condemnation. And this chapter ends, he says, with no separation. Listen to 38 and 39. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, or height, or depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, that's really good news. That's hope. We have help. We're going to get there. But that's a hopeful statement. Cling to that. Nothing's going to separate us, not even you. Not even my failures or your failures. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. We may be disciplined, but we won't be disqualified. We won't be kicked to the curb. We've been adopted as his, part, as his children, as part of his family. And he loves us. He loves you, and he loves his children and wants to bless them. So let me, let me close our time with this. Let me just mention three things as far as an application of just an encouragement. I'm just going to state them, really. Number one, recognize the Spirit. I said it a moment ago, Alistair McGrath, he said, the Holy Spirit has long been the Cinderella of the Trinity. He said, the other two sisters may have gone to the theological ball, but the Holy Spirit got left behind every time. And so when you think about it, he says, many believers acknowledge the existence of the Spirit, but on the level of personal encounter, their relationship has been largely limited to the Father and the Son. And so today, if nothing else, I hope it's just reminded you or raised and increased your awareness of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, listen, he lives in you. That's about as personal as it gets. And so recognize the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge his presence in your life too. Rely on this future redemption to serve as an antidote to the frustrations and failures of living in a broken world. We can get down. I get down. You get down, we get discouraged, but we need to keep our eyes focused on the future hope and that redemption that's coming, and that is what helps us get through the struggles of living on this earth. And then lastly, rest from striving to live the spiritual life in your own strength and rely on His. I, I love Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. You know, in the context of that psalm, it, it speaks of the fact that there's all kinds of trouble that's going on all around. But that word, be still, or in, in my Bible it says, cease striving. It means to relax. It means to, to sink down into, like you'd sink down into that comfortable 
lazy boy you have on a Sunday afternoon, right? And what he's saying is he's saying, listen, just relax, sink down, and, and cease striving. Rest. Rest in the strength that he provides in the power of the Spirit, in the presence of the Spirit, and the protection of the Spirit because he's more than capable of providing the help and the hope that you and I need. Amen? That's good news, y'all. That's good news. I hope that this week the Lord will encourage you. Go back. I did, obviously, this is just hitting the highlights, but go back. Romans chapter 8. It's a great chapter in the book of Romans. Some say it may even be the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. A lot of commentators I was writing and different preachers reading through this week, it's an incredible truth to cling to as you and I struggle, but we don't struggle alone, and to do it with hope. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time of worship today. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, the gift that you have given to us in his, in his presence in our life, in the power that the Holy Spirit provides. And Lord, ultimately, in the protection that you give us through him, that you have given the Holy Spirit as a deposit that guarantees what's to come, that Lord, uh, times may be difficult now, but there are good days coming. There are blessings and there are benefits as we look to the future. And so Lord, as we walk through this week, give us the help that we need in the present and give us the hope that we need to keep our mind on the future and to press on. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.